And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on November 11th, 2020. Bob Wells is a consulting arborist with 49 years of experience in the arboriculture industry. He entered the tree world as a climber with Bartlett Tree Experts in 1971 in Piscataway, New Jersey. In 1973, he started the firm of Wells Tree and Landscape in Princeton, New Jersey, which is now in its 47th year under the leadership of his son, David Wells. Bob completed his BS from Rutgers Cook College in Plant Sciences in 1985 and in 2013, a master's degree in environmental studies from the University of Pennsylvania. He is a New Jersey certified tree expert, a registered consulting arborist, and a board certified master arborist. In 2007, Bob joined Morris Arboretum of the University of Pennsylvania as an associate director with the Urban Forestry Consulting Section with Jason Lubar. They focused on both internal and external contracts involving a myriad of tree-related matters, including inventory assessment and management of the campus's 7,000 trees at the University of Pennsylvania. It was during this time that he also helped to form the School of Arboriculture, which brings in outside speakers and offers classes to the greater Philadelphia arboriculture community. He retired on July 1st of this year. Community service has been a big part of Bob's life, and over the years, he has served as the chair of the Princeton Township Shade Tree Commission and president of the Marquand Park Foundation. Bob is now doing the occasional consulting job for his son with Wells Tree and looks forward to getting a chance to finally read all those books that have been on his bucket list. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Bob. Well, to you too, and congratulations on, I hear you have a new book out. I can't wait. I do. I have a new book out called Shrubs and Hedges. Hot diggity. Where can I get a copy? You can get it almost anywhere around the world that speaks English. <laughs> All right. So, so consult Amazon, huh? <laughs> Amazon has it, yeah. 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 Bob, I took note that you uh, started in the tree business back in 1973. 71. And I just wonder if we could go back a little bit because uh, you and I are about the same age. Industry's done so much in terms of equipment and personnel and how we approach our work. Talk a little bit about what it was like in 1971 going out to a tree job. Yeah. Uh, it, a lot different than it is today and it was pretty scary and uh, I'm glad that I'm still alive. We, we climbed with uh, laid ropes at that time, uh, something called a gold line. There were no uh, uh, nylon ropes that we now have. Uh, so, you know, and we used the taut line hitch 
and uh, there was no advancing your lead with with the devices that we have now. It was uh, pretty much just uh, throw ball and toss a monkey's fist up, um, or else uh, uh, just bear hug the tree and climb. And so it was pretty primitive in many many ways. You know, it's been a delight to see uh, how things have progressed over the years. And so, how you mentioning this brings to mind an article that was written for the International Society of Arboriculture by your grandfather, by the way, was, Eva, if you don't know, he was a great arborist. I do, I do know that. Okay, and, yes. and he he wrote uh, an article towards the end of his career, now you can correct me how, but I think it was called 50 Years in the Tree Business or something. That's and, right, and, yeah, that yeah, was a talk and, that he probably dictated to my grandmother <laughs> while he leaned back smoking a cigar. <laughs> no exaggeration one of, the, one of the things that stuck with me in that article was that he he said that he just couldn't understand why it took us so long in the industry to figure out how to you know to be able to advance our lead with the slingshot you know and the use of the throw ball you know and it's such a you know it seems like such a, a dopey simple thing and i I can remember thinking about it and uh, inventing my own little shot lead shot bag, you know, made out of stuff that I took apart in the in the workshop and and went out and and sewed it myself and tried, you know, throwing it and thinking, oh my lord, this is never going to work. And you know, here we are today, and it's uh, it's gone through twenty different iterations, and now it's uh, you know, it's the accepted way of advancing your lead in a in a tree, and it's a uh, you know, it's a much, much, much more safer environment. Well, you know, I, I have to ask you, because I, I remember the early 70s that safety was almost non-existent when it comes to uh, tools. And uh, I remember people getting their fingers cut off. Um, of course. Uh, limbs and all, all par body parts were affected. All those that happens still today, although we, we have Kevlar. But boy, oh boy, it's surprising that as many people live through yes, that. It, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it has a lot to do with attitudes, the attitudes that have changed towards safety and, um, you know, the A300 standards that have come into our industry since then. And people just, you know, sitting down and thinking, boy, this, you know, there's got to be a better way to do things, a safer way, you know, to see these, uh, these young people, these crews now, you know, with uh, full PPE, personal protective uh, equipment, and, and the fact that we have trade associations like uh, Tree Care Industry Association and uh, International Society of Arboriculture that actively encourage uh, this kind of an environment, um, programs like the tree, professional tree care uh, safety programs, that's become the culture that that's what you do, you know, and, and it's a much, much, much more safer place because of it. Yeah, it's a it is appealing, and uh, the equipment I don't even recognize it. The stuff that's coming out of the trucks in the morning, other than the throw ball and the handsaw, all that shiny stuff and polyester rope of multiple colors, I don't recognize anything as soon as these guys and gals leave the ground. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you have a chipper in 1971, Bob? Uh, no, I first one I got was in 1973. It was uh, a JEX, Aspen JEX, uh, and uh, I think it it cost all of uh, $3,100. You know, 
Did you it buy it new? I did. And it was a significant outlay and uh, first one in town. So that was my big shiny thing. And it's significantly loud too, I bet. Yes, it was. That was uh, one of the screamers. <laughs> and no, and no ear coverings. No, no, no ear coverings. No, no. Eye protection. It's crazy, isn't it? it Affectionately known yeah. as Chuck and Ducks. Chuck and Duck. <laughs> yeah. Boy, oh boy. I remember having. Uh, we, we had purchased Mrs. Asplund's uh, truck, uh, mm -hmm. pickup truck that they used uh, on the on the farm, and. Uh, that was such a heavy duty truck, honestly. They had very heavy duty equipment that at least mm. back then, I know they do now too, but boy, driving that thing, you had to have uh, a lot of force with that clutch. <laughs> and a strong left leg. Yes. You're also very involved proudly uh, with the New Jersey chapter of the International Society of Arboriculture. And Correct. When you were at the Morris Arboretum, you also, I guess, were a proctor and oversaw the instructors coming in to teach uh, the tree risk assessment qualification. Talk about the ISA. Uh, there's credentials now at multiple levels. Why should a, someone starting out in the business as a climber or as a plant health care technician or in sales think about? getting that certified arborist credential. Okay, well, uh, Hal, if you, uh, if you were an arborist in New Jersey, across the river here, <laughs> you have to, it's the law now. As of April of last year, we now have the licensed tree care uh, expert law, LTE law. This is, has come to fruition almost entirely because of the efforts of uh, a man named Steve Chisholm from Aspen Tree Experts in uh, Jackson, New Jersey, and his family, uh, his two boys, Mark Chisholm and Steve Jr. and his and his wife. They are all certified arborists, and th over 30 years ago, uh, Steve Senior, uh, as the as the president of the New Jersey chapter at that time, said, you know we need to recognize that we need to try to uh, codify the certification system and and to make it a requirement to be able to do business in New Jersey. And it took a long time. And it's largely because of the very persistent, almost entirely because of the very persistent effort on his part to push this through. And And yeah, so that was a great lifetime achievement for him. But to be able to do arboricultural work at all in the state now, you've got to be registered in the first place, which means you've got to prove your uh, insurance, both liability and uh, workman's comp. Um, you have to get CEUs, uh, continuing CEUs, and you've got to uh, have one of the two certifications that they have in the state now, one of which is the licensed tree care, licensed tree expert or the licensed tree operator. Now, if you're gonna do the more advanced arboriculture work, you have to be an LTE, you can't just be an LTO. If you're, you're going to do uh, just removals and light pruning, uh, then an LTO will suffice. And, um, but the LTE is, uh, it, you have to pass a fairly difficult exam that's given uh, once a year. 
that involves a, a written portion in it and um, an identification portion in the field as well. So New Jersey's really taken the lead in uh, advancing tree care safety and you know professionalism within our industry, and I'm very very proud of that. And my son is the president of the chapter this year, so that's exciting. It is that's exciting. Very, it's very nice. gratifying, Eva. New, it seems like New Jersey is probably the lead in the country when it comes to tree standards and who they allow in trees and who they don't allow in trees. Do you think that this is going to spread across the country as we value our trees more and as climate change happens? Are we going to see more protection around our trees and have more educated people taking care of them? Because anybody right now that has a truck can cut trees in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yes. So, uh, yeah, lots of questions there and lots of observations along the way. I do think that we're headed for even more professionalism. I, I think there's no question about it. Of course, every time that there's a storm event like uh, Sandy five years ago, it, it, it's on, the, the analogy I think of sometimes is when there's a disturbance in the forest and a windstorm comes through and knocks over a bunch of trees and creates an opening. And then there are new, there's new things that sprout up you know, within that opening. Well, Every time there's a storm event, there are new companies that are formed because they're, you know, they're meeting a need of, you know, increased demand. And generally because the landscape industry and to a certain degree, the arboricultural industry is, can be defined as businesses that have ease of entry. You're going to find folks that are, that are always gravitating in that way. So hopefully things like the New Jersey LTE law will not be an impediment for them, but be a way to encourage them to do it correctly, to do it, you know, more safely and more professionally. There'll always be folks that are out there, you know, we, what we call weekend warriors or folks that are working with insurance um, or minimal equipment and not, you know, uh, personal protective equipment that, that will, that will always be with us. And I think that as long as you have, people that are willing to pay for that and don't demand a higher standard that the clients and the folks that'll meet those needs will always get together somehow and exchange money. So it's not going to go away, but you know, we do have now in New Jersey, we've got, uh, I think that is four enforcement officers throughout the state. So they actively are cruising around looking for uh, outfits that are not, maintaining standards and uh, they can be pretty aggressive and uh, they have the ability to fine. And, uh, you know, if you get fined for a second and third time, it can be a significant hit. So it's uh, something for them to pay attention to. Are there other states that are moving in that direction? And are there other states that are already have that enforcement in place? Short answer is yes, I believe Maryland does. I believe Connecticut does. I believe Massachusetts does. Uh, I think New York may be headed in that direction. Um, the whole Mid-Atlantic region, uh, MAR chapter of the International Society of Arboriculture uh, has been talking about that. So yeah, but it's mostly in the New England, Mid-Atlantic areas. And how does ISA support um, when chapters are trying to push that legislation forward? Do they have resources that support chapters? 
Well, they do. And and so, as you well know, being a certified arborist yourself, board certified arborist, that there's a very robust certification system within the International Society of Arboriculture, ISA, that um, that now, after, well, when did it start? How, 1993, 1996, right about in there? What, certification in Pennsylvania? Yes, within the ISA. Uh, good question. Uh, I know my number is relatively low, and Bill Graham was in before me, but I, I don't know when it started. Yeah, I think those were those years is when it when it first started, and um, it is now nationwide and uh, actually worldwide even. And um, so there's there are some very uh, fairly strict uh, requirements as far as getting your um, you know, continuing education units, your CEUs, that is, you have to take classes uh, in order to maintain your, your license, your certification. For a board-certified master arborist, it's, it's 30, uh, 30 a year, is that right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. Well, so, well regular, re regular ISA have 40 per two years, I think it is. Okay. Yes. That's so, the yeah, there's you still need to go for continuing ed even right, for ISA right, right. for the for the certification. Yeah, generally a CEU is equivalent to one hour uh, in the classroom. Right. So, exactly. So, yeah, that you can you can think that that's twenty hours of uh, of you know learning per year. I think the ISA has done a nice job in uh, 2020 of uh, the ISA conferences virtual. I guess wrapping up today, it's been three or four days and they put a great program together and really had to scramble uh, with putting a program together. And at the same time, I guess showing a little bit of leniency for all of us out there trying to keep our CEUs up and not being able to attend a uh, bricks and mortar type seminar. Yeah, I, I agree. I think they did a pretty good job. Uh, I you know, watch three of them uh, myself. And uh, what's really nice is that, you know, we've got uh, several weeks to be able to go back and look at these. Um, you know, I think that uh, you're right. That's the beauty of doing classes like this asynchronously. Yeah. So, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night. I can't go back to sleep. I can go in and uh, watch some structural pruning classes. And, uh, <laughs> and then I'll they help you go right to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> last week, last week they had the the canopy conference down in, I guess, the symposium for Montgomery County, uh, Maryland, and that was an excellent one. That was an all day. Oh, really? But you oh, could. But that was, I think, it was five or six credits, something like that, and uh -huh. it was a very, very good uh, presentation that they did, and mm -hmm. I was very impressed. That was the first time I attended that one. But uh, ISA actually has a section on there because. Our, our company, my company actually has uh, done, does a symposium and we get points for our symposium because it's all related to trees. And there are a lot of these different organizations that have symposiums that you can, you can do something every day of the week on yes, that listing that they have uh, mm -hmm. on ISA. And they tell you whether mm -hmm. it's for board certified, whether it's for I just plain ISA certification or whether it's for uh, municipal arborists. Uh, so I think that's a really good system that they have. They didn't always have that. And I Correct. think it makes it much easier for people to get credits that way. And especially if you can do them online. Yep. Yep. And 
the thing, thing of it is, since the COVID started, there are a number of other organizations that are now offering uh, courses like that. So I think you, you want to be a little bit careful. I, I signed up for uh, a uh, course yesterday that I, that I took through an organization that will remain nameless uh, out on the West Coast, landscape-based organization, and the course that was offered was four. And I, I was very surprised that something like that was, was out there and that they're charging folks for it. You, you got to be careful. Yeah. Bob, the name of our podcast is the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to segue if we could. Let's do it. There was an awesome article last Sunday in the New York Times. Mm, can't wait to read it. The Social Life of a Forest. Highly recommended, and I'm going to read a couple sentences from it because I read it again this morning, and it really moved me. And the writer says about two-thirds of the way through, forests suffuse the air with water vapor, fungal spores, and chemical compounds that seed clouds, cooling the earth by reflecting sunlight and providing much-needed precipitation to inland areas that might otherwise dry out. Get this, researchers estimate collectively forests store somewhere between 400 and 1200 gigatons of carbon, potentially exceeding the atmospheric pool. I don't know about you guys, but that almost gives me chills. chills. It gave me the chills just now when you said that. What do we do with that? kind of commentary and statements based in science. What do we do with that as arborists? I think we have to realize that we are the lorics, that it's that is up to us to try to encourage people to preserve uh, large trees whenever you possibly can. So a couple of things. I'm going to uh, refer back to some work that uh, one of our interns did in 2015. This is a woman named Corey Bassett. Who, whom you may know, yes. she's current. Cur- yes, yeah, I, know, I see Eva nodding yes. her head. Mm-hmm. So she is uh, currently uh, on the board of the International Society of Arboriculture as a, a student uh, board member. Um, she is pursuing her PhD in British Columbia uh, at the moment. And uh, she was our intern at the Morris Arboretum uh, in the urban forestry consulting group with uh, Jason Lubar and myself that year. And her project that year, every intern, all of the nine interns that uh, are at the Arboretum for a one year period have a a year long uh, project that they have to complete. Hers was a study of the ecological benefits of large trees. And specifically, specifically, uh, she chose to look at the core trees that are on the University of Pennsylvania campus. Now, there's 7,000 trees in the entire campus. So she was just looking at that area between Walnut and Chestnut uh, from, from 40th over to 32nd Street. And there's, so there's about 4,500 trees in there. The really instructional set of trees for me, the ones that really hit home, were a group of six London planes uh, that are in front of the palestra that are right in front of the stadium 
there. Franklin uh, Field. Franklin Fields, thank you, on 33rd Street. And these trees were planted in 1947. We know exactly when they were planted. When Jason Lubar was called in to look at this job for Andrew Pogan, Andrew Pogan was uh, redesigning that area there. There was some thought that was given to whether they would be removed or not, because there was a significant grade change there. Jason wonderfully looked at it and said, save these trees. Gotta save these trees. And then he, he designed and implemented some tree protection fencing that went in and, and in fact, they were saved. So now these trees, uh, as of the measuring that, that Corey did in uh, late 2015, they, were, they average about 24 inches in diameter. They're all about 75 feet tall. And each one of those trees provided the ecological benefits, well, excuse me, all six of them provided the ecological benefits of the equivalent of 1,300 two and a half inch caliper trees. Yeah, yeah. And we know that because she took very accurate measurements, that is the entire canopy measurements, uh, height, spread, volume, everything, and then plugged it into a program called iTree Eco, which is part of the iTree suite. Um, that is, and that's uh, Department of Agriculture. Uh, correct. Yeah, Davy yeah. Tree Service uh, worked with the uh, Department of Ag to instrument to implement that. And um, one of the guys that works over there now, uh, Dr. Jason Henning, uh, it's right, was instrumental in, in, in putting that together. It's a wonderful tool, wonderful tool. And it's, and it's free for any, any one of us to use. And as long as we have good information as to the size of the tree that we're looking at, we can plug those figures in and we can begin to understand, we can understand how much carbon is being sequestered, how many particulates are being pulled out of the air, what kind of groundwater uh, is being saved on the site. You know, there are nine different variables that it looks at and pulls them all together and gives you a monetary figure that, that becomes more robust every year as more people put information into it. It becomes more statistically valid. And you can take that information, for instance, uh, you know, if you're a shade tree commissioner, an environmental uh, person on the environmental committee in your town, or just a person who has interest in, you know, the parks in your town and you want to you want to go and advocate for a greater budget to your town council. I, I know this because I defended my budget at, at Shade Tree Commission for many years. And I'd say, it was always the aesthetic argument. Don't we want more beautiful trees? And, you know, forget beautiful. Forget aesthetics. Forget all that stuff. We live in a new world now. And we can quantify that world. And this tool helps us do that. And we can stand there and say before the council, look, these are the economic, tangible benefits that this tree puts back into the environment. And we need to save it. And, and you know, that's it. And so we need the budget to be able to do that. And I think that every year, every year, that's becoming clearer and clearer and clearer to, to everyone, to everyone. It's funny how looks are always, uh, we equate that with people too. We devalue people because they may not look like we expect them to look, and yet they could be savants. And it, it's the same thing with a tree. You may not like the way it looks, but it could be the savant of the 
saving the world, you know, by yes. by yes. its carbon sequestration and the, the mm -hmm. moisture that it pulls up and, and so on and creating a microclimate that may be protecting thousands of, of organisms that you're unaware of. Correct. It's, it's unbelievable. And I think that these kind of things are uh, critical for how we approach climate change. I just mm -hmm. finished an article today that I was asked to write for the design magazine on uh, tree protection. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that uh, I discovered in, in my research is the fact that you know people like to clear cut everything off of a construction site and then and then put everything back new but those new trees don't start doing what the old trees did until they reach the the number caliper like if it's a two year two inch caliper it'll take mm -hmm. two years before they did are doing something for the environment correct, correct. or if it's a five inch caliper it's going to take five years for them to do something so you're losing all of that time that you could have had things being done if you would have saved the trees that were on the site. Yep. And, and also, it's also better to have a range of age of trees too, so that they don't all die at once or they're, they all age or max out at the same time. So it's, that's really critical, but people don't think about that. So um, I guess it's uh, 15 years ago, I, I read about some of those findings that came out of research that was done at Morton Arboretum in, in Chicago. And I'm forgetting the gentleman's name right now, but he wrote the book Tree Plant Tree Planting, the latest edition. Uh, Gary Watson. Thank you. Perfect. Yes. But wow. Uh, when I read that and 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 realized that, yeah, what, what he was talking about is the establishment period. So that if you put in a four-inch caliper tree, you're going to have four years before it hits that establishment period when it can it can live on its own two years for two caliper you know these the two inch caliper and that kind of thing but if you were able to save a, a, a 10 20 inch caliper tree in the first place and not take it down you know those ecological benefits each year environmental benefits would have, would have accrued significantly that kind of Great. reminds me of institutional knowledge. <laughs> when when an institution is cleared out of all of its knowledge and all these young people are brought, not young people, but new people are brought on, because it could yep. be all different ages, it takes a while for that company to start chugging again. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with the environment. You know, if you lose the environmental memory by cutting down trees, you actually are starting a whole new... Uh, you're hoping to start a whole new mycorrhiza association, bacteria mm. association, um, small microorganisms of all different types that are in the soil. And that has to start all over again. And it, it's, it, you don't have the starter is what I'm, mm. I'm thinking, you know, that special starter that makes the wonderful bread, that yeast that's been, <laughs> you know, fomenting for such a long time mm -hmm. that you get that friendship bread, for example, mm. um, over time that, that really, has amazing flavor that's what we lose when we when we lose our old trees yep you know bob we're probably going to be wrapping up shortly okay i know you have some connections in the isa world you're a bit of a power broker jason lubar your former associate at the morris arboretum and myself looked at a polonia right before quarantine center city spreading over three yards. Uh, it had to be condemned. 
there were some structural defects and we are both track guys. Mm -hmm. And I came away that day and I pitched it to Jason. And I said, Jason, what the ISA needs to have is their next credential, an opportunity for arborists to become urban canopy restoration specialists. Urban canopy restoration specialists. Great. So it would incorporate the best bullet points of right tree, right location, eye tree, root zone assessment, cycle mm-hmm. risal inoculant, species choice, and even calculating the number of trees. And this would be residential as well as institutional, as well as construction sites, as well as municipality. Now, there might be some redundancy. Maybe it's already being done at some level. But I think you and I have talked about this, and Eva and I as well, somehow handing the mantle of responsibility to arborists and say, here's a shovel, here's a one-inch diameter tree, go plant. Mm -hmm. And I think it would drive the tree care, the, the people that love trees that are arborists to be a little bit more engaged with that planting process. Wow. Great, great thoughts, Al. So let me segue a little bit with that thought in mind to a phenomena that I have been seeing or, or, or hearing a little bit of whispers about, okay, which is the assisted migration movement. And I think there are some real analogs there with uh, this idea of uh, canopy conservation, uh, urban canopy conservation. So I first uh, became aware of this idea of assisted migration um, through a gentleman named Max Paschal, mm-hmm. yes. who was uh, also a Morris Arboretum intern. He was an arbor- arborist, uh, worked with uh, Hawk, Andrew Hawk, as the arborist intern uh, two years ago, I believe. Now, Max wrote so that this was his focus, and he wrote a, a wonderful paper, which I'll, I'll share with you, about uh, climate change, the inevitability of climate change, and, and what we can do to try to preserve and uh, encourage the forests of the future. And here's some of the facts that he threw out. U.S. Forest Service uh, and recently published uh, an illustration of what our climate will look like in, in the next 30 years, and they are predicting that in 30 years, with an 8.5 degree increase, 8.5 degree Fahrenheit increase uh, in that time, that we're going to be in zone nine. We'll no longer be zone 5A, B, or whatever we think we are right now, or six. We're We're actually seven. We're actually seven. Seven? Yeah. We're seven, so two two more numbers is not going to. Holy cow! Yeah, but you know, large New portions Jersey's going to be renamed, Bob. It's not going to be New Jersey. It's going to be New Florida. Yeah, right. And Pennsylvania's so, going to be New Alabama. Well, large portions of Florida, of Philadelphia, New Florida. Yeah, we'll we'll be underwater by twenty one hundred. And uh, if we had a a fourteen point four degree increase it would return conditions to the last mass extinction that occurred 52 million years ago. We're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. I don't want to end this podcast on a downer. (laughs) 
But talk about your favorite tree. Why do Quercus alba? Quercus alba? Yes, indeed. Yes, it's a survivor tree. It is uh, tough. It's long lasting, stout. You know, it's a survivor. And it has the best edible acorns. It does indeed. And it just, it, you know, and, and it's wide open and accessible, easy to climb. Um, it just yeah. smells you know, good. It smells, when I touch a white oak, I just get that feeling of, ah, oh, I'm home. What do you mean survivor tree? So, you, you know, the family, uh, Agaceae is uh, characterized by uh, being able to cross pollinate with each other fairly frequently. So it's a fecund species. And uh, so we have lots of different uh, varieties, you know, within, within the family, within the, the genus. And they have survived because of it, you know? That's cool. Yeah, it is. You know, one observation I've made, uh, Eva mentioned Michael Reisel Networks. And I'm also realizing like everyone we talk about on the podcast, we all nod our head, like we know that person. So it's like <laughs> arborists, I think we've got our own Rhizosphere, Michael Reisel thing. We do, we do. We're all connected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here's a connection that I have to thank you for, Eva. And 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 uh, if we're wrapping it up, I will. I do want to bring this up. I have been um, these last three years now an adjunct at uh, Temple Ambler, teaching uh, native plants, native plant ID. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the class that you taught for many many years. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I I took it over. Huge shoes to try to fill. <laughs> but it has given me such pleasure, Eve, I, Eva, and I thank you so much for, oh, for leading I, the way. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. I, you know, I have to tell you, when I was teaching the Northeast Woodland Ecosystems class for the grad program at Temple, uh, that course was so inspiring to me, um, just going and spending time in the woods with students and, and looking at at all the, the myriad of uh, uh, species that could f- be found in a square foot, mm-hmm. or a square yard, and being able to work in the shade on a hot day, uh-huh. uh, which makes it that much better, brings things home. You know, you know, you know where you feel comfortable, and tree people feel comfortable among the trees. And that yeah. has been a real challenge this year because uh, you know we had the, the we had the directive fairly early on in the semester that you know that's it everything's going to be virtual. So teaching a course like that in a virtual environment was a real challenge, but um, we did it. Well, and I had to say that I I've been, I was fortunate in my career that I I took a lot of photos, so I have over a million photos, and I was able to whip up things for for um, online learning uh, quite a bit, but it is challenging, especially when you are outside all the time and mm-hmm. feel revitalized and energized by what you're doing when you're out there. And it's the same thing when I'm at Longwood, we go out onto Conifer Knoll and look at the big uh, concolor firs and, and sniff the stems and uh-huh. look, at the, look at the shape of the needles and, and there's nothing better than that. Are are you teaching a course there now? Oh yeah, I've been teaching there for for, maybe, let me see, 
13, 13 years. Oh my! And, and at, at the barns too. So that the whole the whole thing is is just um, amazing when you're out there in in the environment and when people say trees talk. I just laugh because I say, what makes you think they didn't talk? <laughs> because they're it's very communicative, right? <laughs> right. Oh, my. So we're in a really good profession. It's a really good profession. It's very gratifying. Well, thank you, Bob, for being with us. We really appreciate the time you've taken and your expertise and your wonderful history within the context of the, um, the boriculture industry. And the, uh, I hope wishing all the continued success with the Wells uh, Company in <laughs> Jersey. And um, thank you. Yeah, and my final thought is, you know, 1971, ladders, throw balls, pole saws, rusty hand saws. Fast forward to 2021, and now arborists are on the front line of climate change and climate crisis. And putting out fires by planting new trees and taking care of what we've got. So uh, to the next 50 years, to the next 50 years. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Hal. Take care. Take Thanks, care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our podcast this year. Our next podcast will air the weekend of January 9th, 2021. Wishing everyone a happy and healthy holiday season.